Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads with unique careers and the roads they travel to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbow, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Max Russo, the class of 2020. Today, we talk to Matt Green from the class of 2012, flight instructor for Sierra Charlie Aviation in Scottsdale, Arizona. Matt will share with us how to think like a pilot and how he turns students with zero flight experience into certified aviators. Joining us today from the class of 2012 is Matt Green. Matt, what do you do? So I live in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and I work as a certified flight instructor. Uh, I basically teach and share my passion for flying with other students who come to our school looking to become pilots. And we do uh, a wider range of students. So we have students that are hobbyists that come in and just want to be able to fly on their own on on their own time, maybe on the weekends. But we also, you know, get young students that are looking to make a career out of uh, aviation and one day become an airline. How did you begin your schooling for uh, this particular career? What did you, like? How did you? So what what began like the path once you left WeGo to start this? So I went to college uh, right out of we, uh, West Chicago, and I uh, went to Northern Illinois University where I studied uh, pre-physical therapy. And uh, when, you know, fast forward about four years, I got out of school and I had to make a decision. Was it grad school or was it going to be something else? And my uncle's a pilot for United Airlines. And at a young age, he always, uh, you know, kind of inspired me. And I kind of saw what he was doing, traveling and stuff like that. So I was like, you know, maybe the the flight, or the future in flight school was for me versus grad school. So I went to a school, it's called uh, ATP Flight School, and actually they have a location uh, at DuPage Airport right down the street. And it is a school that will take a student like myself that had zero time in airplanes prior, and they will, and they call it the Zero to Hero program. So it takes about nine months to be a fully rated uh, flight instructor and then after that, you uh, you uh, you basically go to work. So uh, that's basically it. Took me about with Chicago weather. It took me about uh, a, a year. What's like the first plane that you work with when you're beginning your training for something like this? So the the typical path would be a uh, just a small little single engine airplane. Uh, you know, the Cessna 172 is the most common used training aircraft. So. Uh, you you probably train in that for about 65 to 80 hours to get your private pilot's license, which is that first step in uh, pilot training for all students. What's the learning curve on a, a plane of that size, uh, and like what is like the what are the, like the major kind of initial takeaways? Like once you're on like a plane, and then you have to then go to something theoretically a little bit more complicated, probably a little bit more decision making processes that need to go along. Like what's the what's the what's the learning curve on the first plane, and then like what's the next leveling up, so to speak, for the next plane? So yeah, so I mean, your first steps in pilot training in the single engine is to solo an aircraft, right? You most people can solo an aircraft in like, you know, I would say anywhere between 25 to 40 hours, which in relative, uh, like relatively, like that's a lot of low time, a lot of people would say. Uh, so your your first goal is just to be able to land an airplane. So it's pretty tough, especially in Chicago, you get a lot of winds. Uh, and then after you get your uh, private pilot's license, you go through instrument training. And that's another learning curve of its own because uh, you're learning to fly in the clouds. So uh, you're 
basically the best way I could put it is playing a video game. You're looking at your screens and you're looking at your instruments and learning how to fly with zero reference to outside. So uh, that gets pretty complicated on its own and there's a lot of procedures that you learn and uh, you know you, you stick to your training. And then yeah, like, you're, like you said, you move into more complex airplanes. So after that, I went into uh, multi-engine training. Uh, so you, you know everything's more fun with the second engine on the airplane, but your responsibilities double. Uh, a lot more things to monitor, uh, more engine instruments. Uh, gear starts retracting now. Uh, so, you know, you got another added thing on landing. Got to make sure your gear's down. So, uh, you know, you got to be uh, a lot more prepared, a lot more ahead of the airplane and, uh, you know, thinking way ahead of the airplane because you're moving, you know, 100 knots in the air, or, you know, translates to about 100 you know, let's call 110 miles per hour in the air, and you can't just stop and press the pause button. So a lot more preparation and as you move into more complex airplanes. So when, you, when you get in, when you leave the one type of plane and you go into the next one, how do you, how do you know that you, you've, I mean, there's obviously you would pass a test, but I would imagine something that is like this, there also has to be a type of, real confidence in believing your eyes because like you said you're i would if you're up in the clouds you probably have no frame of reference of where the ground is or your orientation like what's how how do you build a type of confidence as you go from one type of plane and all the different complications with the technology and the gauges and all that to the next one what's what's the how do you how do you begin to put language on that kind of confidence because to me, it seems like it's so life or death with every little slight reading of, of these instruments. How do you get that type of confidence? So, I mean, every step away in, or every step of the way, I would say, in uh, flight training, there's that, that boat of confidence that you get. Your first one on your solo, you, I mean, your flight instructor steps out of the airplane for the first time. You're in there by yourself, and you know you, you go through a couple laps in the traffic pattern and you do a couple landings and you say, okay, I could, I could do this. Because for the first time, you don't have that instructor next to you and, uh, with that, you know, that safety net. Like if I do something wrong, my, uh, my flight instructor is going to bail me out. Uh, you know, and then every step of the way, you're going to take a, a, a check ride where you go and you, you sit down with the, what we call a designated pilot examiner who's going to test your skills and you know at the end of the day he's going to either hand you your ticket or he's going to obviously uh, recommend you come back for retraining and every step of the way if you pass that check ride that that's that boat of confidence i mean dpes are what we call the pinnacle of the profession they've been in it for years and they are given those rights to kind of you know make those decisions on who's pilot and who's not and you know that gives you that confidence on your own and then just having a great relationship with your instructor and getting the feedback and seeing that you are successively checking the boxes that you need to throughout training, it kind of gives you that, that confidence that you need to uh, keep moving forward and, you know, getting those ratings that you're, you're uh, going up to earn. So you said you went from the single engine to the multi-engine and it, it became more fun, even though it, there was more, um, challenges in terms of recognizing all the gauges and all that is the source of the fun that you're able to um 
figure out the puzzle of the gauges? What is it that makes it like more fun? Is it the complication and sorting through all the different types of adjustments? Like where is the source of that enjoyment come from as the plane gets more complicated? Uh, it's just, you know, the planes were definitely moving faster uh, to more than two engines. You can go further. Um, there's just new added challenges. Uh, since the airplane's moving faster, you get off course a lot faster. You got to be more ahead. You got to be thinking more complex. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of moving pieces uh, throughout. Um, you know, there's double the gauges, you know, instead of two throttle or one throttle, you got two throttles. Uh, you're you know, the prop of the airplane uh, starts moving and you have different power settings. So it's just, it's it's a very complex puzzle, uh, you know, that it's new terminology and just a lot more procedures that, you know, as a pilot, like this is what I signed up. To. This is what I envisioned as a kid, like airplanes are moving, you know, still relatively a small airplane in, in a much bigger world, you know, when you, you tell somebody, you know, you're a pilot, they're thinking the 747 or, you know, the 737 Southwest jet, um, not the airplanes that we're typically flying in the flight training world. But, uh, you know, as you gain experience, as you do, uh, you know, everything gets more, more complicated. So you, so you went from the, the single to the multi-engine and then you became fully certified. What was the next uh, stage of your uh, ascent as a, uh, as a pilot? So, you basically train to become a commercial pilot and you know to kind of break the stereotype you know when people think commercial pilot they're thinking o'hare pilots walking down o'hare airport well those are your airline transport pilots the commercial pilot obviously just means you can be paid to fly and then you go to flight instructor school which is about three months of training uh and once you finish flight instructing and learning how to teach now how to teach somebody how to fly uh it's it's a whole different uh ball game you know you got about 250 hours under your belt and somebody tells you all right you're certified to teach now and what we do as flight instructors is it's it's a long-term goal is we have to build 1500 hours to be eligible to work as an airline pilot so we have about 1,250 hours that we have to build teaching. Uh, so we're gaining the experience we need as pilot in command and, you know, all the different challenges that arise as a flight instructor while also, you know, teaching and helping somebody meet their goal. How do you then keep sharp while you're doing all of this? Because like, I could imagine... And, and how do you keep your 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 students sharp uh, as they're um, going through all the various different hours? It's a lot of hours to to, to make their their way through. Um, what are the the various different types of um, you you had mentioned before about you have to kind of plan ahead and kind of have a a particular mindset uh, with that? I wonder if you could maybe elaborate on on what that planning ahead involves as a pilot. Yeah. You know, as as a pilot, you know, you kind of, you know, obviously you, you get in the airplane for the first time, you, you, you start learning the basics and, and how to how to fly the airplane. And meanwhile, while you're doing that, you, you kind of observe your instructor that is, you know, doing the doing all the side tasks, you know, talking to ATP, managing airspace, 
uh, and doing a lot of those tasks that might not so be your responsibility yet. And as you build the time and you're working towards solo, little by little, as a flight instructor, what we do is we, we start giving more and more responsibility to the student. You know, so you show up today and, you know, you and I are having a lesson and you might be, you know, 12 hours in and I say, all right, today's your day to uh, run the radios now. And, you know, we're going to have you communicating with air traffic control and we're going to have you making sure we can get in and out of airspace. So as you kind of give more responsibility, it's honestly, it's drinking through a fire hose sometimes. You know, you got to you absorb as much as you can. And as you take on more each day, you end up being able to take those side tasks away from your instructor. You know, one of the things I was thinking about, <laughs> I was driving my car today and I noticed that uh, uh, I'm probably due for maintenance uh, on my car because I've driven less, uh, obviously, since uh, the pandemic and, and all of that. But still, nonetheless, I got to get some maintenance to the car. Um, what's the maintenance schedule of, of, of a pilot to indicate to the mechanics and those that uh, work on the plane, is there a normal kind of scheduling that is always going to be used with the plane regardless of mileage or it does it come also upon your observation of how the plane handles and then you say, hey, can you guys look at this? This is something that's going on. What's that kind of communication like between the pilot and the mechanics that, um, that work on the plane? Yeah, so planes, all uh, all planes in North America are required to go through a what we call an annual inspection. So every 12 calendar months, a plane's going to get inspected. And that's whether it's personally owned or if that's, you know, if it's commercially owned and operated by a flight school. Uh, flight schools or airplanes that are, are for hire, um, they're going to go through what we call 100-hour inspections as well. So Every 100 hours that engine runs, those uh, those airplanes are required to go in for uh, for that inspection. And then as we see things, you know, we we bring them up to the mechanics, and it's up to us to communicate. They honestly, they really rely on a lot of the information that we can get. Uh, you know, if I got a an, an engine running rough, uh, you know, and they're like, "Hey, when is it running rough?" and stuff like that, because sometimes it's hard to replicate from the maintenance. Uh, the maintenance department. So it's kind of on the pilot to be responsible and to kind of note, well, okay, I noticed this, but this is when I notice it to, uh, to help the mechanics kind of that. So, you know, the mechanics will look at it, try and figure it out and, you know, try and turn around the airplane pretty quickly. So how did you find your way to Arizona? So, you, you know, as a flight instructor, we're paid hourly and, uh, you know, in you're kind of in a race in, in the aviation industry, seniority is everything. So the faster you get to where you want to go, the more better you are for a uh, setup for your future. Um, so, you know, after finishing flight school and it took me about a month and, you know, you're losing those weeks or in the winters, you're, you're losing days for icing and all the low clouds. I was like, well, where's one of the best places to go in America? And it was, it was probably Phoenix because, you know, there's 365 days in the year and we probably lose five days out of the out of that 365 where we can't fly. Um, so uh, I came out here uh, for flight instructor school and I started networking. Um, I started putting resumes while I was in school at a at different flight schools in, in the Valley here. And I found a school that was, uh, that's called AeroGuard and they uh, train international students that come from China. 
that have contracts. So while I was in school, I was offered a position to start there two weeks after I finished. So I uh, quickly went home, packed up the bags, and drove out here to Phoenix. So when you the the type of um, students that you have that might be more international, I mean, are, would they be in the um, would they be more in the hobby realm or are they, are they, are you trained to even do a type of agricultural uh, type of uh, kind of, I'm, I'm imagining something like, you know, crop dusting or something like that. Are there, is that even something within the realm of a techniques that are, that would be uh, used at this particular flight school or am I completely out of my mind when I'm coming well, up? You're, you're, not, uh, you're, you're not far off. Um, the the uh, there, we did a, a a wide array at AeroGuard, so we did actually have Korean students that would come in, and this would be a kind of a hobbyist kind of kind of feel because uh, they would come in just for their private pilot's license and on a, like a let's call it a study abroad here in America, where their university would represent them and they would come get their private pilot's license and go back home. Uh, where I was focused in the Chinese department was actually we had airline clients you know for example Xiamen airlines is a chinese airline that would contract uh students send them here to america to get their private pilot's license through commercial license then those students would go back to china and actually start working for their airline so the the very interesting thing that i find is some of my early students from when i started two years ago they're uh they're already flying A320s in China. So they're airline pilots fully blown and flying and uh you know chasing their dreams in the sky. What are the the range of planes that are at your particular school? So we deal with uh you know just single engine and uh, multi-engine planes uh mostly that's basically where the GA world's really going to have the focus. Some of your uh intro basic and get those basic ratings and then you know students are going to go that are going to continue on are going to go to you know their respective airline if they get hired by an airline and those airlines are going to put them through jet training so it's very entry level training um you know so Cessna 172s piper seminoles some of the bigger trainers that you see uh basically used worldwide at all different kinds of places so the someone who you're that would be on a path to maybe fly a jet there's no way to fly a jet if you didn't have the type of foundational uh understanding of a plane uh in the type of education that you guys have is that would that be a safe way of explaining it yeah so that's uh pretty pretty accurate right there um you know the faa is keeping it regulated they're realizing that you know it's it's not ideal for people to make the biggest jump to a jet right away. Uh, they they make it so that you go get your foundational training, and then once you you know if you have the means to be able to go buy your own jet one day, uh, you would then go seek the proper next level training. So you can't you can't really skip ahead. So it's not like you know I kind of always relate it to driving a car. It's like I could my first car could be the sports car, um, but that's not really how it's going to work in the aviation industry because of the focus that the FAA has on the safety of the pilots and the safety of others that are, you know, cause we operate in the skies that, you know, 
just because we're in the sky doesn't mean we're only harming ourselves. We can harm the people around us on the ground. Yeah, I was wondering if you could maybe speak to that, like, which is that, you know, we we have such high standards for safety in the FAA. What would be a, a good example to kind of explain like the type of rigors that go into FAA regulation that keeps everyone safe that you've, uh, that you, um, that you teach your students or um, something that you've, um, that you've observed? Yeah. So the FAA does a really good job at, at kind of regulating that. So the 1500 hour rule actually for airline pilots was like the first big step the FAA made for uh, North American pilots. Um, to put it in perspective, right, I, I have about 1,450 hours. So I'm about 50 hours away from the magic number. And I have students, you know, from other countries that I have trained that are already flying much bigger airplanes. And that just goes to show that in North America, the FAA really keeps, uh, keeps us gaining that experience that we need to qualify to keep moving up into more passengers as we go. Um, it was found that, you know, a lot of crashes early on uh, were due to lack of experience, and that's where that kind of focus is. And then, you know, on in the GA level, the uh, FAA requires us to stay current. So uh, to carry passengers, I have to have three landings in the previous 90 days. Uh, we also have to, every two years, it's, uh, you have to, you're required to go get a flight review. Uh, so basically, you know, if you had your license every two years, you would come back to a person like myself and say, hey, I'm up for my uh, biennial flight review. And, you know, you and I sit down for a couple hours, we go flying and basically I make sure that you've kept current and that you can still safely fly airplanes and stuff like that. So there's a lot of checks and balances there to kind of make sure that pilots are remaining safe and that we're staying current and that we're, we're staying active and that we're not just going you know, months on months without flying and then hopping back in and starting to carry passengers. How many clients do you see per day? Like, so like your, your, your typical day begins at what time and then how many people, how many times a day do you go up? I know you said it's kind of dependent on uh, who comes in and all that, but what's a, what's a typical day like for you? So as a flight instructor, you know, at the current school I am at is, you know, we're independent contractors. So the beauty is, is we're as busy as we want to be. Uh, so I typically get up at, you know, 5 a.m. Uh, here in Phoenix. Uh, it gets to be 4 a.m. if it's summer because the the mm. brutality of the heat is uh, pretty rough. So I will typically see the sunrise and I'll typically see the sunset. Uh, and I'll see about three to four students uh, from the, from that time period. And typically we are, you know, doing doing some briefings. We're going flying, working on different different aspects of their, you know, their specific goals. And then, uh, you know, or we're doing some ground training for the oral knowledge that's required to be known. Um, so I'm typically flying anywhere between five and a half to, you know, seven hours per day in, you know, staying busy and, you know, flying around and doing different things with different students. You brought up the idea of the uh, nearly catastrophic heat that is in Phoenix during the summer. Is that it? Uh, is that a is that more challenging to deal with heat or cold when you're a pilot? So, as a pilot, uh, you know, if I was going to say the heat is definitely two types of challenges. It's uh, it's exhausting for one. Uh, you know, we in our airplanes that we're flying, most of them aren't equipped with air conditioning and it's very expensive to put it in. 
Uh, luckily, one of the planes that we fly at my current school, we do have air conditioning in, so it's a nice relief when we get to get to fly that airplane. Uh, but so it's just exhausting. It it it's it takes a lot out of you, as you can imagine, as a human being, and you know mm-hmm. a lot of challenges to overcome. But then on the on the flight aspect, as as it gets hotter, the airplanes perform poorly. The climb performance goes down, and uh, the airplanes aren't able to get to altitude as fast nor are they able to get as high as they might be able to in the winter months. So uh, definitely you got to plan for that because, you know, there's a lot to, to take into account, you know, takeoff roll, uh, terrain and all that stuff like that. I, I know that area of Arizona very well. Um, my mother and stepfather have lived out there for almost 20 years so are, are, how are you able to, when you're typically up in the air, how far reaching, I mean, you, you don't go as far as like Sedona or Flagstaff or the Grand Canyon. What's the range of when you're up in the air with your students? So in a local training flight, we're, we're staying pretty close, uh, probably within, you know, 60 miles of the, of the airport, probably for local flights, you can do most of what you have to do in the immediate area. There's some cross-country training uh, that we do. Um, so, you know, some students in, you know, the beauty of our school, we're going we're gonna to let the consumer kind of choose where they want to go. So sometimes we, you know, we get to break out, get to go to the Payson area, uh, Tucson area, and Yuma. We go out there. Lake Havasu is out to the west. Um, we do go to the north sometimes. So Prescott is a pretty popular area. It's pretty close for us from Scottsdale. Uh Sometimes Sedona. Sedona is actually the most dangerous GA airport in the state of Arizona. So most schools won't let you go there. We, we're we allowed to go there. It's tougher in the summer. Um, so we kind of can go for the first flight of the day, but not much past that. And then every so often, the rarity, we do actually get to go up to the Grand Canyon. So that's probably in... If I had to rank the top places I've been to in, in the type of airplane I've been to is probably overflying the Grand Canyon. That was definitely a, a sight to see that most people don't see. Yeah, incredible. I, I, I just got to be breathtaking. Um, it's just out of curiosity, why is the Sedona Airport uh, dangerous? So is it just it, the way the landing is or what's the it's too hard of a landing? or A little bit of both. It's It, it sits on a plateau. Uh, and it, that plateau is kind of surrounded by uh, some some mountains that are around it, uh, which actually cause the winds to come in and be unpredictable. So a lot of downdrafts coming in off the mountains. So you're coming into land, and now you're getting a, you know some wind blowing blowing you down towards the runway. Uh, so it takes a little bit of planning. And most schools are going to uh, like our school. We require a flight instructor on board. So. Um, I haven't been able, been fortunate enough to do it yet, so I can't speak from experience. But from what I hear, it gets pretty, pretty crazy. So I'm trying to get my my mind in the into the mind of a pilot and all the various different decisions that have to be made uh, at any given moment, and and so. If you were like in a thunderstorm or what, or where there was something that was really kind of challenging you as a pilot with the kind of the weather and meteorological conditions outside, what's the, what's the, the immediate type of decision process of how you are able to kind of stabilize the plane in layman's terms? Like, like what, what gauge do you look at first and like, or like what, what are the various different things that you do to 
remain in control, I suppose, to make sure that you don't panic as a human being because it's scary. Uh, but then how do you then uh, fold that over into then trusting the instruments and kind of um, go through that type of process to remain calm when you have to uh, kind of almost ca cancel out the, you know, the fear index of or the fear part of who you are, but then trust the, uh, the technology, if that makes sense. How does, what's the, what's the process of how you're able to manage all of that as a pilot? Yeah, you know, as a lower time pilot, as a, I mean, back in my student days, uh, I actually got caught in a in a thunderstorm that was kind of developing. It looked like it was good. We made the decision to go, and when we got in the air, it was a quickly we were like, oh, we shouldn't be here. Um, you know, I was flying uh, out of Louisville on the way back to Chicago, and you know, we were in a thunderstorm that obviously that I said was developing, and you know, we're getting pushed down by a, some uh, by a downdraft and we're descending at 2000 feet per minute and the airplane's got full power and we're trying to climb and we can't so uh you know you're 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 running through a lot of different things you're looking at different routes like where can i go to kind of get out of this you have um it's a lot of technology these days you either you know there's avionics in the airplane that kind of you know it's like your gps in your car that kind of give you uh, updated satellite weather uh, or there's other things you can buy to kind of link with your iPad that kind of gives you that satellite as well. Uh, so you're looking at the satellite and you're like looking for different routes to kind of wiggle your way through the gap of the storm. And you also, you know, the beauty of it is we have trained professionals that are air traffic controllers. And, you know, you just, a lot of the time you just got to admit when you're somewhere you shouldn't be. And you, you lean on them to kind of give you the best guidance that they can to kind of direct you in the way. Uh, and then you're also, you're, you're taking it a different, different accounts. It's like, where can I go? You know, maybe Chicago is not the answer. And I remember at that time, I, as a student, I was thinking the possibility of landing at Cincinnati and uh, kind of going towards Cincinnati and seeing if we can get around the storm because our airplane's not flying fast enough to beat a, beat a thunderstorm, unfortunately. Uh, you know, after looking around and looking at the instruments and seeing, it was it, it was pretty rough. You know, uh, trust your airspeeds. Uh, you know, obviously making sure the airplane's flying uh, is at a good airspeed because if you're too fast, the airplane can take damage. So if you need to slow yourself down, you're scanning everything that you can, making a decision. And, you know, if you have somebody next to you, another pilot next to you, you, you know, you're brainstorming and we call that crew resource management. And you're using that third person, that air traffic controller. And in that situation, the uh, air traffic controller told uh, told us to turn left, fly through it, and we'll be on blue skies on the other side in about five minutes. Sure enough, he was right. And let me, it was the first time and the last time that I made that decision. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, we call them, uh, you know, egos or different kind of mental uh I'm trying to think of the mental thought processes that we have, and one of them is get their itis. So get their get their itis is you're on day day ten of a trip that was only supposed to be three days long due to weather, and it's okay. Well, it's time to get home. So uh, you know, a little get their itis. You learn that little white knuckles in the airplane, you know, and it's it's it it scares you enough to you know be be better at decision making. So. It, it's interesting because I mean, there, there's a lot going on there, which is one, one bad decision because of fear could compound to another bad decision if you're not trusting the process of reading all that. But you also have to, as you're saying, uh, relent 
your ego to listen to your co-pilot lean on air traffic controller and, 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 and seek help because that's the safest thing to do. Meanwhile, to, to turn off the disappointment of not being able to get where you wanted to go and, and, and that kind of fear of disappointment that you weren't able to, to, to accomplish that particular goal, even though your decision was to ultimately be safe. That's a really fascinating, there's a lot going on there psychologically, you know, that's, I love that. Especially at a low time like I was, like, you know, you, experience is everything. So uh, it was an early experience that I, I, I honestly, it's that I'm glad I had, but never want to have again. <laughs> I can imagine. Oof. So, okay, so I always like asking when it's, um, when it, when it makes sense to ask a question like this, which is, what would be your dream plane and where would you be taking it? So, you know, that's a, to a, to a pilot, that's a very, uh, very complex question, I would say, because there's so many different categories of airplanes that I would say, uh, you know, if it's an airliner, you know, the, the airliner is probably the 787. It's, you know, it's the Dreamliner, um, you know, it's newest, it's, it, it, it's, it's shiny and every single pilot probably wants to fly it at this point. Uh, you can take it anywhere in the world. Uh, I, I, I am fascinated with international travel. Uh, you know, it's funny, I'm a pilot and never been out of the country. So uh, one day, hope that changes pretty soon and kind of take it. You know, I, I think the first stop I want to see the Swiss Alps is probably the first place I would go. Uh, you know, but if it was like military aircraft, I, I mean, probably choose the SR-71. It's the fastest airplane ever made. Uh, you know, those guys are up there 60,000 feet going 2,000 knots across the ground. I mean, that, that'd that be, wow. be a really fun time to kind of experience that too. Do you have plans to then to move into jets or are you happy uh, at, at this particular uh, type of plane? Or what's, is there, uh, it, it, what's the, the trajectory uh, of where you go next? So a, pilot's, uh, a pilot is always uh, always chasing the next big thing. So uh, there, the goal is to move here pretty shortly. Unfortunately, the pandemic kind of halted uh, hiring at the moment. So typically a person at my level of experience, we actually would be moving into airline training here uh, within a couple hours. Normally we can get hired around 1450, but uh, airlines have kind of stopped hiring at the moment. And so the goal is to, to move forward, uh, you know, regional jets, typically are the next step. So it's about your anywhere between your 50 to 90 seaters. Uh, you know, a lot of those airlines like United Airlines have uh, reg or regional uh, airlines like SkyWest Airlines and stuff like that. After that, it's about five years at a regional and then you move up to a, uh, a legacy like United American Delta if you're, if you're fortunate enough, if you gain the experience and, you know, you stay on the narrow path and you, you keep your goals oriented, you can move keep moving up so oh that's exciting that's great uh, so matt this is the time of the interview where i like to ask uh, the, the guests to kind of leave the audience with words of advice for success yeah so one thing i've learned in the aviation industry is the uh, it's a small world uh, never burn a bridge it's a small world that's what we uh, that's what we say here in the aviation you never know that you know whether or not the student next to you that might be learning at the same point as you you don't know where they're gonna go uh for the best example i can give is when i was at aeroguard i was a training manager for for a little bit uh and my partner he left for another flight school and then when this pandemic kind of shut down 
the international business. He was at a flight school and uh, right down the road, Scottsdale, where I am currently at. And, you know, when it, I saw things going south, I reached out to him. He says, hey, we're looking for experience. And I actually was able to secure a second job in, in, a, in an industry that had no jobs. So uh, never burn a bridge, network, 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 introduce yourself, uh, you know, and talk to various types of people in your future career field. You never know who you might meet and who might be able to help you get to the next step in the, in, in the long run. And then the second thing I, you know, always, if, if you have a business card, carry your business card, you never know when you're walking down the street in, in my industry, clients, you know, you'll be walking in the supermarket might have a, you know, your work polo on at, you know, at the grocery store. And so he's like, Oh, you're a flight instructor. I'd be like, yep. And he's like, I have always wanted to be a, you know, a pilot. You have your business card and that's another, uh, another, client that could be in your door the next week. So Matt, this has been super great. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your experience, this really cool job. So thank you so much. I appreciate you having me and I hope uh, WeGo is doing well and looking forward to coming back soon. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening. If you want to find past episodes, go to Apple Music Podcasts and search WeGo Vox.